This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, The Forever War, our guest today, New York Times foreign correspondent Dexter Filkins, chronicles the remarkable chain of events that begins with the rise of the Taliban in the 1990s, continues with the attacks of 9-11, and moves on to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Filkins has covered the reality on the ground in those countries since 2001. He will speak this Thursday, September 18th, at the Los Angeles Central Public Library at 7 p.m., as part of the Truth on the Ground in a Time of War program. Dexter Filkins, welcome to Film School. Welcome <laughs> Thank to Weekly you so Signals. Much. Sorry. <laughs> welcome to Weekly Signals. I have a show right after this called Film School, and I think I went through a time warp right there. <laughs> how, how are you today? I'm fine. I'm fine. Well, where do we find you? Is this New York now? I'm in New York. I just okay. got back from Iraq uh, on Friday night, yeah. Oh, really? Now, now how are things there? I, I know that... Uh, Petraeus has just been has just stepped down. Is was there any talk of that before you left? Oh, yeah, I saw General Petraeus. Uh, you know, uh, right when I this a couple weeks ago now. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's been there. He's been there eighteen months, I think, this time around. Uh, so he came essentially in late '06. You know, helped orchestrate the surge, mm-hmm. uh, and now is handing the baton to. A general named Raymond Odierno, who is, you know, they're very close, and Odierno was, was, has only been home for eight months. I mean, you know, it's, people forget, but these guys, uh, I think if you just take General Petraeus, he's done 48 months in Iraq out of, you know, out of five and a half years. These guys are, these guys really, really have sacrificed quite a bit, uh, for this, uh, you know, regardless of, of what, what one thinks of the war. Does this change the, the, the politics of the war in Iraq, uh, either in Iraq or here in in America. No, I don't. I mean, I don't think so. I think what's it's likely to be kind of the reverse of that, which is I think the politics both in the United States and in Iraq are likely to change. You know, probably the mission that General Odierno has, and and what I mean by that obviously is whether, you know, depending on who wins the presidential election, uh, you could have, you know, he could have fewer troops to work with, um, and and if the if the Iraqis. Uh, get what they want. He may have fewer troops than, than what he feels like he needs. And so I think he's going to be, you know, he's going to be, uh, have to do a, a lot of crisis management. Now you say need uh, more troops. Is, is the U.S. military, uh, are they still, there? are they asking for more troops? Are they upset about the redeployment of the troops uh, into Afghanistan? What's the general sense that you have about this? Uh, no, no, they're not thing? asking for more. I mean, if you remember... The surge troops have basically gone home, so it's they're back down to about I don't know about 145,000 troops. Things are very calm there, they're remarkably so. I mean, there we you know maybe we could talk about that a little bit, yeah, but yeah. but um, no, I mean I think you know the 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 I they're, they're of course they want to start drawing the number down. I mean I think the Iraqis want that, and the Americans want to do it too for for probably different reasons. The American generals want to do it because frankly they're. The military and the, the guys, you know, the grunts on the ground are are totally strained. I mean, you know, you meet these, you know, 21-year-old kids who, you know, from North Dakota who are on their third and fourth combat tours, you know, um, and they're, you know, it's just straining everybody, of course. But so I think um, a 
lot is going to play out over the next, you know, 18 months. I think we'll know a lot more pretty soon, probably after the presidential election, of just of just how much those numbers are going to come down. But I, I think it's a good bet that they will come down. Now, you said uh, you wanted to talk more about the surge, and I know uh, you said that it's been a real successor, that things have calmed down. Could you get into that a little bit more? Well, it's not so much the surge, and I, and I, I you know, and I, and I, I, Back away, I'd back away from the word success, which sounds okay. very final, and I think because uh, nothing is final in that place. Um, it's just the conditions on the ground there have have improved uh, remarkably since since I left uh, in late '06, which was really the, the I left kind of at the nadir when when I mean you know Baghdad was disintegrating into what, a, what was really total anarchy. Um, they've they've stepped back from that, and so if you uh, and I just as an example, if you if I take the park Abu Nuwas Park, which is about a two mile stretch of just a, a, an ordinary riverside park that's right on the Tigris River, just happens to be in front of the house that the New York Times you know rents in a neighborhood in Baghdad. That park in 2006, uh, and I know this because I used to go running in the park, um, was an incredibly it was spooky. It was deserted. It was crisscrossed with barbed wire. There were there were you know militia. Uh, gunmen who were there manning, you know, creepy-looking checkpoints. I mean, it was dead, and and it was a it was a symbol for the the dying city that Baghdad had become. And when I went there, you know, when I just was there, um, I went out at dusk the first night I got back, and there were about two thousand people in the park, uh, and it was at dusk, which is remarkable, um, you know, and, and past sundown. Families, parents with children, you know, women walking alone, which is like astonishing. You know, women in jeans without their hair covered, kids yeah. playing on swing sets. I mean, just, you know, very, very ordinary. But that's that's what, what was so shocking about it. It was it was sort of shocking for its ordinariness, uh, which was you know a very wonderful and remarkable thing. You know, people want to know: uh, Is it going to last? Uh, and and there's just no way to answer that. You know, it's the arrangements that have been made that have brought the peace about are all very, very provisional. They're all very fragile. They're not self-sustaining. So, you know, it's uh, I hate I hate to say only time will tell, but that's that's uh, I mean, it's more than that. Of course, it will depend on the decisions of very many people on the ground, Iraqi and American. But uh, there's just no way to answer that definitively now. Now. We keep hearing reports about the uh, electricity supply in Baghdad too. That some people are down to an hour a day. Is there? Is that improved too? There. No, it's yeah. awful. It's it's it is unimaginably bad because I mean the if you just it's it's hard to imagine. I mean unless you live you know way out in I don't know Victorville. Um, it's it's uh, you know the daytime temperature in in Baghdad or in Anbar province or anywhere around there is you know 120 in the shade and and so in the sun it's in the sun it's you know 140 or 150 it's just you know the heat is just mind-boggling and um and and they're down to about an hour electricity a day and and so it's hard to imagine that kind of misery um but that's what it is i mean a lot of people have generators and but you know generators are i mean so i just i was you know standing in Sadr City the other day, and and uh, you know, which is a slum, you know, three million people, and uh, there was no electricity. There were generators kind of clattering, you know, diesel smoke all over the place, kind of open sewers. And I thought, my God, you know, um, the remarkable thing is not that there's so much violence, is that there's that there's so little. Um, uh, so, so the electricity situation is still is still horrendous. And I think the the short answer is, you know, building a new power plant. Or building several of them takes many, many years, and so it's just you know it's going to take a long time. 
We're, we're speaking with uh, Dexter Filkins. The book is The Forever War. Um, and there are so many threads that we could pull on in this discussion in terms of trying to unravel what is really going on in Iraq. Do you th- the, and I know this is a longer answer than I'm probably going to want to hear. But <laughs> that the, doesn't the, make any sense. Well, I mean that it's going to require – it requires yes, yes. a lot of explanation here. But is the surge – it's a combination of an arrangement that we've made with the Sunnis yes. by, through, uh, through uh, intimidation and money – or and also then an arrangement with the Shiites who have essentially really taken over Baghdad, haven't they? Sort of ethnically cleansed most of the Sunni neighborhoods in Baghdad. Well, that's or a good that... question. I mean, to, to answer the first part of it, I'd say it's, I'd say it's less intimidation and mostly money. Mostly um, money. But but it's more than that. I mean, if you and and what you're talking about is sort of broadly known as the as the Sunni awakening. Uh, right. And 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 by that uh, arrangement that we have, there's about a hundred thousand uh, Sunni. Iraqis uh, on the payroll, most of them making no more than about three hundred dollars a month. But you know, it's remarkable. That's that's like right out of the American Treasury, and so it's you know thirty million dollars a month or something. But you know, that's not of it's. I mean, as ever, any military officer will point out to you, there, it pays for itself in you know. Humvees and tanks that aren't blown up, right. and of course, in, in American soldiers who aren't killed, and so it's it's uh, it's well worth the money, you know. Um, but I think that to answer that question, I think I think what happened was that uh, what happened with the awakening is that the Sunnis and the Sunnis broadly got sick of got sick of Al Qaeda, and Al Qaeda overreached, and Al Qaeda became sectarian, and they wanted you know they wanted not just to kill Americans, but they wanted people to kill Shiites and to start a civil war. And the Sunnis of Iraq rebelled against that, and they rebelled against Al Qaeda, and they were under pressure from Al Qaeda, they were under pressure from the Shiites, and they went to the Americans, which is of course an astonishing if you think back to 2003, 2004, it's an astonishing turn of events. I mean, here are the main, you know, the Sunnis were the main generators of violence. That was the that's the insurgency, you know, and suddenly the the the, the, the Americans and the Sunnis are best of friends. So, so right. Well, um, I... so there's there's that, and that's that's actually not. I mean, it's it, that actually works pretty well. I mean, if you go to these neighborhoods, these old Sunni neighborhoods that you know, I went to Adamia, which was under the control of Al Qaeda in 2006. Um, they're pretty calm, you know. And there's yeah, there's these you know, uh, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of guys in the awakening used to be insurgents and. They're sitting around manning checkpoints, you know, with Kalashnikovs, you know, for 300 bucks a month, but it's pretty calm. But, um, but yeah, I mean, all these things are very, very provisional. Um, but, I, but to answer your second question really quickly, is all of Baghdad, has it been ethnically cleansed? No, that's not quite true. I mean, I mean you know, there's something like 5 million displaced people in Iraq, right, um, right. you know, whether outside of the country or inside of the country. And a lot of them have started to come home. Not, not many, but, but some. But there's still a lot of, I mean, there's still a lot of Sunnis in, in Baghdad. Um, you know, so I think um, all these things are kind of cut and paste with rubber band and gum, and, and uh, everybody's kind of hoping and praying that they last. I, I, think, I think the big question is, for me, is, you know, are they going to last uh, without 140,000 American soldiers around? I mean, I think that's the big question. That is the big question. Can, can they reconcile? Are, do you see the, them moving towards some kind of accommodation, the Sunnis and the Shiites? Because they seem to be the most uh, antagonistic of the, of the three major groups within, within Iraq. Well, you know, there, there was a phrase uh, not long ago that was kicking around the Pentagon. Uh, you know, they have sort of jargon for everything, and and it was it was the phrase was accommodation without reconciliation, um, which which I thought was actually pretty good um, as far as jargon 
in other words, um, look, you know, uh, these people don't have to like each other. Um, we just need to try to figure out arrangements by which they don't kill each other. And I, and I think that's a, that's a pretty accurate. Uh, that you know, that's a that's a more reasonable expectation of what's more more likely what's likely to happen. But. Uh, is there going to be is there going to be some kind of a comedy? Will they reconcile enough that all this stuff will hold together? They haven't done it yet, you know. They just haven't. And if you look, if you just take the awakening, which frankly is as important in the, as the surge in in making things calmer there, Maliki, the Shiite prime minister, has been doing his, his darndest to dismantle the awakening. And you know, the Americans, frankly, General Petraeus, etc., they've been practically throwing their bodies in front of him to stop him from doing that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and again, it just raises the question, if there aren't Americans there to throw their bodies in front of, you know, Prime Minister Maliki uh, to stop that, uh, then he'll do it. And if he does it, you can bet that a lot of these former insurgents are going to become current insurgents again. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we're back at square one. We're speaking with Dexter Filkins. The book is The Forever War. It's an extraordinary book. We didn't get a chance to thank you for it. And Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that. Just uh, quickly, what, what made you want to be a war reporter? You're, you're putting your life on the line in many situations, and you're, you're armed with a pen. How does that work? <laughs> well, I think, you know, first of all, I think um, I was kind of the accidental war correspondent. I mean, if you go, if you go through the book itself, uh, you'll see... You know, I was just—I was a correspondent in India uh, in the late 1990s, and you know, Afghanistan was one of the countries that I was—I was supposed to be responsible for, and it was at the time. You know, you look back now, and it's—it's it's such a fascinating time. But it was ruled by these very strange people called the Taliban. You know, this was before 9/11, and I think my first encounter with with the Taliban was I, I went to a public execution and an amputation in the Kabul Sports Stadium. You know, on a Friday afternoon, and I, you know, I sat there that day scratching my head, saying, "My God, who are these people?" Yes. And you know, they weren't really connected to anything then. Um, and then, of course, you know, they became very connected to everything. And you know, 9/11, beginning with 9/11, and so I just kind of rode that wave. But I, I you know, if if to answer your question, I think, you know, it's it's dangerous uh, the work that I do, but. It's fascinating, too, and, and it's a rare thing to be able to witness, you know, history uh, unfold before your eyes and and to see the kind of extraordinary human drama that I've seen. Um, and so it kind of keeps you, it keeps me going. Uh, before the uh, program uh, started, uh, Nathan and I were talking about an event that occurred just a couple of days before 9-11. And I wonder if you had the same, e- I remember distinctly reading the article about the assassination, that I believe a bombing of a major um, leader within Afghanistan. Ahmad Shah Massoud. Thank yeah. you. Uh, and, yeah. and, uh, and the effect that it, well, looking back, we know it was, I mean, we have a better idea of why it happened. But did you have a sense at the time that it happened that this was a foreboding, or did you just think this was about the politics of Afghanistan alone? Well, I, I mean, I should say this. Um, two years before that, I met uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud uh, in his tiny little, you know, what was what, we, what the little bit of territory that he was holding on to against the Taliban. Of course, he was one of the last commanders that was holding out against the Taliban at the time, and, and really it was this tiny, tiny corner of of Afghanistan on the border of Tajikistan. And so, you know, you had to take this, you know, practically 2,000-mile end run around Afghanistan through Central Asia to get to him. But, you know, he was this extraordinary man. Um, 
you know, he, he, he kind of looked like a French painter. You know, he used to wear his this beret kind of cocked to the side, and he could speak French and uh, was, was really one of these people that would walk in a room and kind of just all the air would go out of it, mm-hmm. you know, when he walked in. He was just extraordinary. But I remember he said to me, now this is 1999, you know, it's two years before 9-11. I remember standing with him on the front lines of of, you know, looking out on the Taliban lines. And he said to me, we can hear the Arabs speaking at night. You know, it's their, their front lines are being taken over by Arabs, and they're being taken over by Pakistanis. Uh, that, that, that al-Qaeda is kind of corrupting, al-Qaeda is kind of corrupting the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one second. Thank, thank you. Um, it's kind of corrupting the movement. And so that's, you know, it was an, I didn't really believe him at the time, but... Um, you know, but but there we go. Two years later, you know, uh, it all came home. It, it's an interesting point you bring up, and I, I think it's something that we Americans don't understand, quite understand. Al-Qaeda is an Arab-dominated uh, organization where the Taliban is is indigenous to Afghanistan. And it, we, I think, as Americans tend to lump all of these people together. But there are those tensions even within within these two different... Uh, totally. So, I mean, Al-Qaeda, of course, is an Arabic word that means, you know, the base. Uh, and it grew out of the Afghan war, you know, the war against the Soviet Union yeah. uh, in in the 1980s. And, yeah. and there was, so it was this kind of marriage of... You know the Afghan extremists, uh, the religious extremists who'd fought against the Soviet Union, and then you know the Arabs uh, around Osama, and a lot of Egyptians um, who kind of came together with this you know kind of global vision. You know that they would take you know they would take the Afghan model of defeating the Soviet Union and take it across the world. Right. I want to. I want to. We've we've touched on Afghanistan, and now I want to talk about your extraordinary article. Uh, the New York Times piece you wrote a week ago, Sunday, uh, about the situation as it's unfolding in Afghanistan along the border with Pakistan and the, that situation. Um, sure. What is happening? Can you give us kind of a general overview of, of, of just where we are in terms of at Pakistan and, and its relationship to Afghanistan? Well, it's just a strange thing. I mean, if you kind of stand back and and you look at, you know, so many people would say Afghanistan was the good war. It was the war we were supposed to do. You know, we took down the Taliban. We had every right to do it. Now, the Iraq war, you know, we screwed it up, and it was the wrong thing to do. Well, here we are, you know, in 2008, you know, seven years after 9-11. And and Iraq has finally stabilized, you know, knock on wood, um, uh, you know, who knows for how long. And what's but what's really what's really really slipping uh, and very quickly uh, and in a very serious way is Afghanistan, and if you and if you look at if you look at what's happening there, what in in large part what's happening is that is that Pakistan of course is right on its eastern border and the Taliban have has sort of regrouped and uh, become much much stronger not just in eastern Afghanistan uh, where they're you know killing a lot frankly killing a lot of American soldiers. But they have a sanctuary in Pakistan, and, and it's this area known as the tribal areas. They're called the federally administered tribal areas. It's a British thing. It dates back, you know, more than a century. But um, they have an untouchable base there. You know, the Americans aren't really allowed to go in. Um, they send these predator drones over, and they kind of hunt for bad guys, and they fire a missile every now and then. Um, but but basically they have a sanctuary, and they have a base, and so they can – al-Qaeda is there. They're believed to be there. Osama bin Laden, probably Ayman Zawahiri, are believed to be in the tribal areas in Pakistan. 
and and they're essentially untouchable. Um, and so they've been able, you know, as you would imagine, they've been able. They've set up training camps. Uh, you know, they're recruiting people. They send suicide bombers across the border, and that's where we are. And that's in large part why things are going bad there. Well, we're in a situation here where they're they're untouchable because, in some part, because. The Pakistani government, for we don't have enough time to get into, for a lot of reasons, tribal reasons, are, are not likely to send their troops into that Pashtun area, as I understand it to be, to, to go after these people. And yes. so do you see, and I, this is kind of the million-dollar question for me, as we are beginning to move our resources out of Iraq, and it looks like we're moving them to Afghanistan, and both the candidates for president have discussed amplifying our involvement in, in Afghanistan, can you see this leading to a... A shooting war with Pakistan over this part of the world, over this region, and over these people? Well, it already has. I mean, to a, to a large extent. I mean, this is kind of a war in the shadows. But if if about a, about ten days ago, uh, for the first time, and you know, in the first time in years, uh, the Americans sent uh, a special forces team in helicopters across the Afghan border into Pakistan, into the tribal areas, and they dropped into a a town where they believe there were a bunch of al-Qaeda guys um, and Taliban people, and they, you know, they had a big firefight, they killed a lot of people, and then they got in their helicopters and went back across the border. They did that, which was remarkable, uh, and I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. Um, they did that without the Pakistanis' permission. Right. Uh, and, you know, remember, if, you know, Pakistan's supposed to be our great ally in the war on terror here. You know, this is the guy that, you know, President Musharraf, who, of course, just just left office, is that was, isn't, was the guy that President Bush said you're either with us or you're against us, right. and he said, "Well, I'm with you," you know. But but so here we are. I mean, I think uh, you know the United States finally has finally realized that they've got to take the fight across the border, and they're starting to do that. Well, that that's and unfortunately we're out of time. But that sounds like almost the, an app uh, an, uh, an Armageddon in, uh, scenario between the United States and in a war with Pakistan. That just sounds very very dire. Well, you know, people don't realize, but it's you know. I mean, I, you know, I, I forget, but it's, you know, Pakistan is a country of 175 million people. You know, it's gigantic, yeah, you know, yeah. and it's kind of imploding on its western border, and, and uh, it's and, tough. It's and, very, very tough. And its strongest institution is the military, which is, you know, not not good yes. for, for them yes. and not good for us. Uh, well, Dexter Filkins, thank you very much for being here on Weekly Signals. The book is The Forever War. Uh, that's Dexter Filkins. Thank you for being thank here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.